Hello, welcome to the very first Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. Each week we're going to bring you exclusive and original stories and interviews offering agenda-setting insight from inside the game, specifically from David, but it's not a one-man team, is no, it? No, very much no. not. So all our writers from across The Athletic will join us as well, depending on what stories are breaking. Uh, your column comes out every Monday. That's right. We've got an awful lot to come up on on this podcast. We're going to talk uh, Pochettino and Jose Mourinho and how that all came about. Uh, we're going to talk Manchester United's transfer policy, Jaden Sancho. Uh, David has this um, affinity with Arsenal that has been built up over the years. Affinity? Love-hate? I don't know how you'd describe Arsenal it. Arsenal fans come to you for all their Arsenal knowledge. Even if you're not writing about Arsenal, they come to you. And to vent their fury. You wrote in your column... A few weeks ago, craziness was about to break out in the coaching world. What made you uh, predict that? And as we sit here recording this podcast at the start of the week, you seem to be proved right. (laughs) Well, firstly, I can't take entire credit for that because it was a quote from an an anonymous source, uh, tongue twister, uh, (laughs) who works within... um, within management circles and is extremely well-connected, extremely trustworthy, uh, at the coalface and very reliable. So it wasn't exactly my information, but I just relayed it. Um, And it followed the fact that um, Niko Kovac had been dismissed or or parted company with Bayern Munich. So that opens up one of the most sought-after vacancies in uh, football management. Um, And it also fits into a wider narrative. Within football, it was known that Maurizio Pochettino wouldn't be managing Spurs for a hell of a lot longer. Now, I was repeatedly told he won't be managing Spurs this time next year, but loads of people knew it was going to be sooner. In fact, the biggest surprise was that it didn't happen last summer because that relationship was broken and we can explore that further. Um, Then there are other sort of live scenarios like the Arsenal situation, like the Everton situation. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain can always be described as a live scenario because if Thomas Tuchel doesn't win or do well in the Champions League, then he could be available. Even if they do do well, he could be available. Um, So there are a number of moving parts within management uh, that the people who work in that area feel we're going to come to a head this summer. One of them I didn't mention there is that despite what people are saying publicly, all I'm saying is there is a feeling within the game, within many people I speak to, that Pep Guardiola could be coming to the end at Manchester City. I'm not saying that as fact. He says that he he he's intending to see out his contract. Because his contract goes for another year Exa- at the end of this Exactly. Um, but things are changing around him with his wife going back with some of their kids to Barcelona. Um, with uh, We don't know how Manchester City's season's going to pan out and how he'll feel in the summer. Uh, there is admiration for him at places like Bayern Munich where he's managed before. And so then you could see vacancies popping up all over the place because if Manchester City becomes available, who would they like to bring in? People are talking up... Um, Uh, someone like Brendan Rodgers for every job Eddie Howe at some point it's felt needs a a sort of big opportunity or with with all due respect to Bournemouth uh, maybe a more high profile challenge for him will Gareth Southgate stay at England for much longer now we know he has Euro 2020 but we don't know how that's going to pan out for him so yeah I'm relying on the information I'm receiving from other people but this summer is you know, it's suggested to me will be tectonic within the management world. So, so within fans, uh, the fans' communities and and social media, um, and and just the general gut feeling of pundits, 
is um, as well as the clubs that you've mentioned that you know West Ham, Everton, uh, based on based on results more than anything else within the game. Mm. Would they and the people you talk to would they be called live situations as well? Absolutely, right? Absolutely, yeah. So at Watford, the situation is pretty obvious. Uh, they don't keep hold of their managers for long, and Javi Grazia was was their longest serving manager, I think, uh, uh, under this ownership. So yeah, that situation. I mean. And and within the media, these things don't just get invented. I'm not that close to Watford, so I, yeah. I can't say for certainty. One thing I do know from people I've spoken to is that despite um, their denials on this, there is some potential possibility of an, an ownership change there. But on the management front, um, th- these rumours that Kike Sanchez Flores could already be under pressure don't just come out of nowhere, despite what some people think in the public. Um, and and those betting markets as well, again, they somehow they are informed and normally have a success rate, because and, and it's proven because things tend to follow the path that they predict and, and they earn a lot of money. In terms of West Ham, they're backing um, Manuel Pellegrini for now, uh, but that could change it at any yeah. moment. So yes, in response to your question, those other clubs are live and um, I, I don't think there's ever been a more precarious time to be a manager. Let's go to this this Tottenham deal then to bring Jose Mourinho in and how it came about with Daniel Levy and Jose Mourinho because that story is fascinating. Yeah, it is. And um, we've reported it extensively uh, on The Athletic. And I would refer you without meaning to plug it. I would just no, that's the whole. Yeah. That's the whole point. <laughs> I need to, need to explain to you how this is working. You talk about it. Plug, <laughs> plug the more in-depth articles on the website. Yes? We'll, that, we'll get there. That, that, that's the company line. And I would urge you genuinely um, to, to seek the, the articles around how that deal came about. And there are others within the industry in it. And it's important to to credit these people, people like you know Matt Hughes at the Daily Mail, who got a lot of really good stuff, and Sammy Mockbell too at the same paper. Guys at the Times and the Telegraph, especially somebody like Matt Law and Sam Wallace, extremely well connected there. Um, and what I can add to it is suggestions. And I, I'm not saying this is factual. It's again, please appreciate what I'm hearing from within certain sources. And and I want to be able to relay this yeah. sort of stuff without people turning it into a story. He says that as mm. fact. Because that often comes back to bite you with the people you're talking to. They don't want to talk to you anymore if you're um, being, you know, you, you are oversharing. Um, so you've got to be very careful. But yeah. One thing I've heard is that Daniel Levy uh, wasn't particularly uh, looking for Jose Mourinho initially, um, though it was a suggestion of um, mainly Pini Zahavi, and that has been reported by others, um, that this would be a, a good deal worth structuring. Um, a different person has said to me that a very early meeting took place at Les Ambassadors uh, Casino in Mayfair, which is a private members casino that Pini Zahavi has always held most of his meetings at in London. Uh, very uh, secluded, discreet in a private room there. And that um, Daniel Levy relies on his or, or believes in his footballing judgment and connections. And that brought the Mourinho situation to the fore. Um Things were not right at Tottenham. Whether it whether you like the fact that Pochettino left and Mourinho came in and whether Mourinho was meant to be yesterday's man and Pochettino was one of the foremost coaches in the game, both of which could be true or false, um, it wasn't working at Tottenham. Things were broken and they needed to change. Uh, so this, many believe, came to a head too late 
but it came to a head nonetheless. And the deal was actually pretty smooth by all accounts. Um, and, you know, people you speak to um, who are around Tottenham and not necessarily within the club, so they don't have a particular agenda either way, speak pretty uncomplimentarily of the way things had deteriorated under Pochettino. Incidents like uh, not flying home with the squad from the Champions League yeah. final and going straight to Barcelona did not go down well. He had almost no communication with his team in, in the ways that he did before from the summer through to the moment that he was sacked. Um, he um, was said to be keen to leave and that his uh, that some people around him were letting it be known very audibly that they wanted out. But of course, they didn't want to walk away from their payoff. And so Daniel Levy, reluctantly, because he always wanted to keep Maurizio Pochettino, um, realised that, that, that something had to give. Um, as, as, as far as Pini, just going back to Pini Zahavi, s- strikes me that that's a name from... A decade ago, maybe fifty. Pini Zahavi was a name that cropped up in the in the early two thousands. Maybe I think did it was he Rio Ferdinand's agent in one of in Rio a, Ferdinand's move to Manchester United from from Leeds. So it's, it's a bit of a blast from the past. Is Pini Zahavi? I remember him most prominently from the Sven Goran Eriksson yeah. to Chelsea days and yeah. then England, etc. Um, he's obviously extremely well connected and obviously um, you don't just flitter away from the scene when you were so heavily involved in it. Um, I must say his name had gone quiet, relatively speaking, for for quite a long time. Um, I started to hear more and more of him in recent years with uh, Paris Saint-Germain, actually, and a feeling that any deal that Paris Saint-Germain do, he needs to have some sort of involvement in it. And really, we should get someone on here at some point to explain what that means and why that has to be the case and why that person is so relied upon. People like Kia Jarabchian previously at Chelsea, some would say now at Arsenal, Um, or it is the case now at Arsenal that he he is involved to some extent. Um, And so Pini Zahavi has been around and um, to have the ear of people like Daniel Levy and is he a sounding board for Daniel Levy or is that going uh, too far I've been told that that Daniel Levy respects his mm, judgment okay. and trusts it on football and his connections. Um, and so you get to to a situation where now what's really interesting in in that one is that um, George Mendes, um, it sounds like, wasn't that closely involved, despite Mourinho being a, a long term client of his. We started to see some tension between Mourinho and Mendes towards the end of uh, Mourinho's reign at Manchester United when a statement was released by Mendes and Mourinho then went to an, into his press conference and said that's nothing to do with me I think he may have contradicted it and said that that's George's words and he's never said something like that before now people have told me that George is focusing more on the higher level stuff now like Wolves and club yeah. deals Atletico Madrid although there is one story uh, that tells me he is still because he's got an enormous net network at Gestafoot, his company so they are of course still in, involved with players but personally maybe moving to a sort of higher echelon and it was actually um, uh, reported by Matt Hughes in the Daily Mail and, and it's true that um, that a Portuguese lawyer actually closed this deal um, for Pochettino uh, for, for Mourinho called Daniel Lorenz um, who we've not heard of before. And so it seems to me, from putting a, a few pieces of a jigsaw together, that Pini Zahavi got the ball rolling from Tottenham's point of view. There would have been others involved as well, I'm sure. And then 
at the end, Daniel Lorenz, on behalf of Mourinho, closed the deal and it was done. Which would also back up some of the stories of Mourinho kind of wanting a clean slate here, having reflected on what happened at Manchester United and being told by people at Manchester United where he'd gone wrong and a new coaching staff at Tottenham as if he's reset and decided clean slate, new people, away we go. Just on final thing on Tottenham before we come on to what next for Pochettino. Um, how much were the players consulted, do you know, about about this change? In any other walk of life, it would seem sensible when big changes are coming that a variety of opinions are sought. In football, because it seems to be so sensational and childish at times, if an owner or a chairman consulted players about whether to change the manager, then that becomes a big story. But it would seem common sense to me. It would seem common sense to us, but I think the clubs are becoming more and more aware of how easily these things can leak out Mm. if they tell the players or consult them. And uh, that can undermine the coach who's still in position and might not get the sack if if, uh, they decide to stick with that person. In the case of Tottenham, we're pretty sure that barely anyone had been consulted. It was a huge shock to most of the players Uh, there is one whisper and I'm calling it a whisper on purpose because I don't know if it's true that Harry Kane was consulted uh, by Daniel Levy before the decision to remove Maurizio Pochettino who Kane was very close to was taken and to bring in Jose Mourinho Um, and I don't think that should be sensationalised or taken as a big surprise if it is true because he's the captain and a senior player and the England captain as well Um, so yeah, on that front, I think Spurs were were very um, kept their information very guarded. Um, little revelation: I was actually with um, a senior staff member of Tottenham on the morning, so the Tuesday, yes, morning, uh, and he was the tu- well, it he was, was announced the Tuesday, Tuesday evening, evening yeah. for for a decent. I was with that person for a long amount of time, and there was no indication. So unless these people. Um, uh, elaborate the truth for want of a better word or or um are expert at, at keeping things private there was no indication in that meeting whatsoever phone calls agitation and a couple of telltale signs that i can't explain but would show to me that it wasn't widely known within the club um i don't think that person would have been with me on that day if if they knew it was happening. Um, and that suggested to me that this was one of football's best guarded secrets, despite the fact that it wasn't an enormous surprise once it came out. Uh, let's move on to what next for Maurizio Pochettino. And and <laughs> and therefore you may guess what might be next in that we're bringing in the Athletics Manchester United reporter, Laurie Whitwell. Although it might not be next, but there are links between Pochettino and United. The all indications are no. Um, Edward Wood has sort of made it be known that um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is the long-term vision um, all that non- not that long ago. Um, obviously, his position came under um, a bit of pressure after the Newcastle defeat um, before the international break. And since that point, the results have been better, performance have been generally better. Um, but they were quite insistent that the long-term vision is with Solskjaer, not just based on um, sort of what he has done in terms of on the pitch, in terms of the signings that have, have been pretty good, um, but also sort of behind the scenes in terms of this cultural sort of reset, which is becoming a bit of a, a sort of buzzword, but I think does hold value in, in the way that it's some sort of deep, rooted stuff needed to change. Um, clearly, the fact that Prochettino is now available for free um, when he is obviously somebody that United sounded out previously and were very interested in previously just 
makes that question relevant uh, for as long as United are not, you know, soaring into the top four or, or challenging for the title or Pochettino's out of work. Sounded out subtly. Uh, well, yeah, so obviously I've done this piece um, and sort of adding caveats, as David has mentioned, in terms of you can never be 100% sure what has happened because I wasn't at you know yeah. at this meeting. Um, but yeah, said to, uh, I believe it was the summer of 2018, uh, Pochettino uh, met a representative from Manchester United uh, sort of around the M25 because it was a, a sort of a easy place of location. And, uh, you know, I think it was a, a meeting just to sort of sense how you know things were what what the plans might be which i guess as as you were saying in any industry makes total sense really just to sort of get your ducks in a row really but um yeah in football is kind of decided that it's a, a bit of a a nefarious activity. Oh, on transfers, uh, Laurie's contacts, your column, however you look at it, Harlan to, to Manchester United. Um, you've mentioned that his dad has been around the Manchester United training ground at Carrington. From what you've written today, it's become more complicated. Yeah, so uh, Adam Crafton did the exclusive story for The Athletic a week or so ago that United were stepping up their interest, intensifying their interest in Haaland. That was something um, that within the game had been very apparent for for an amount of time um, to the extent that one person who uh, works for another club and moves in these circles said to me, it's an unkept secret. Everybody knows that Alfinger Haaland has been seen and visited United's Carrington training ground. Um, a completely separate person said to who who is um, very well connected at United said to me that um, uh, guys at Carrington uh, think that it's that they're going to get Harland. Uh, they're convinced that he's going to be coming into the club. Um, but there is a stumbling block in this. It's well known that. Um, any deal involving Haaland also involves Mino Raiola, the super agent, so to speak, who has been involved in deals with Manchester United involving um, Paul Pogba, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Henrik Mkhitaryan. Um, and United have... Uh, it's, it's not exactly clear on the exact nature of their current relationship with him because some say they don't want anything to do with him and others say it's actually still quite cordial and they speak. Um, but it's been very clearly relayed to me that this does complicate matters for Manchester United and that would suggest that they possibly don't want to deal with him. And given that this is a prolific 19-year-old uh, Norway international who plays for Salzburg and is wanted by a hell of a lot of clubs any kind of stumbling block is not going to be helpful in this situation. And so uh, Laurie will probably know better than me what that means for the chances of the deal happening. No pressure, mate. (laughs) (laughs) You launched it up there to to dribble it out of play. Um, Yeah, I I get the sense that this is very much a a possibility um, from United's perspective just because of the way that Solskjaer's been whenever he's been asked about him the link that they've had in the past at Mulder. Um, I actually tried to interview um, Erlinger Haaland um, during the summer for a background piece on Solskjaer and was told by Salzburg, no, which I'm now sort of thinking, oh, did they sort of have a clue as to what might ultimately unveil? Um, I just think that it, United at the moment, they're definitely after a striker. Yep. Um, I did a piece just 
on what David was talking about earlier um, regarding how stories can change, um, I did a piece on the fact that they were going to go back in for Mario Mandzukic in January um, uh, based on um, what high-level people had told um, a, a friend of mine. And I just don't think that that's actually now going to happen. I think they've sort of moved away from that. He's not played for Juventus um, in the summer. I was speaking to somebody recently that said that I, I would park that if I were you. Um, but they are looking at, you know, sort of loans, sort of low-cost deals. Um, so I, I don't know about the January window um, in terms of actually getting him, but I, I just I think they need to be doing something where they're getting the pieces in place at least, and then mm. it can the button can be hit in the summer because the deals in the summer, the Maguire one took too long to sort, so I think this is an opportunity for them. And Jaden Sancho as as well. I mean, David's written a, a, on Sunday, wrote a, a, an exclusive on the future of him, which we'll delve into a bit more, but United's interested in him. Again, I think that's definite. You know, the last summer they were very interested in him. The kind of mood, I think, was that it wasn't the right time for him to go to a club in, you know, bit of a state of flux uh, wanted to see what, where the land lay and obviously had a, a season ahead with him at Dortmund where it was a lot more stable um, he's definitely one that United were after um, and I mean they've, they've needed I know Dan James has, has come into the picture now um, and he's done he's exceeded all expectations he's played phenomenally well but I think they still need another winger a right winger that, that would fit into that system um, and, and Jaden Sancho would, would certainly fit the bill massively So your story on mm. Sunday then what's going on with him? Yeah well Laurie's right about last summer um, and we discussed uh, the Sancho situation on Radio 5 Live at the time uh, just before the transfer window opened. He was Manchester United's prime target for the wing position or among their prime targets uh, last summer in a sort of best case scenario. It wasn't right for him to move then um, but it is going to be right for him to move in the summer from his the next summer from his perspective. Um, not in January which some people had speculated on and um, things have, have soured a little bit of late. He got taken off after 36 minutes of the uh, defeat against Bayern Munich earlier this month. Uh, they were 1-0 down when he got taken off um, and they went on to lose 4-0. He was left, I'm told, feeling humiliated, um, unprotected and um, a bit embarrassed really to, to have been treated like that given what he's done in, in his couple of seasons at Borussia Dortmund. He's their youngest player um, and... It was a little bit of a feeling, we're told, that he was sort of hung out to dry on that occasion. There have also been a number of public comments from the hierarchy, the coach, Lucien Favre, who's under intense pressure himself, and also the, the hierarchy um, um, at, by, at Borussia Dortmund. Um, and so that isn't good for the feeling towards Sancho, but as a sort of broader broader point that is almost separate to that anger to be honest um he, they've identified it's no great secret that, that they would like to move on in the summer their current options are we're told um in no order other than alphabetical barcelona uh, liverpool manchester united and real madrid chelsea uh, who many people have reported would like to sign him uh, and there is a link there because he grew up as a chelsea supporter mm. uh have not made any contact 
with with uh, Sancho's representatives yet, is our understanding. And Manchester City have, and they would like to be kept informed of the situation, which is particularly interesting. One, because they were his former club, yep. and two, because Leroy Sane could well be uh, leaving Manchester City. Um, but those are the options for Jadon Sancho. People are talking about sort of 120, 130 million euros. He signed an improved contract in the summer, so the, the value will be high. Um, but I think, yeah, Jadon Sancho's time at Borussia Dortmund is coming to an end and uh, all of those uh, the, the two clubs mentioned from an English perspective I don't know about fans of Bayern Munich and uh, sorry of Real Madrid and Barcelona the fans of Liverpool and Manchester United seem very keen to bring him in if it's a genuine possibility OK uh, we're going to move on to Arsenal next so you probably don't need to be here for that Laurie you don't, so it's all to David's glory moment on the pod thank you Laurie see you thank soon you thanks Laurie bye Right, the time has come then on the first podcast for the first Arsenal chat. Um, I do, when I was looking at your column today, which I don't think had anything Arsenal. No, not this in, week. No, no Arsenal in this week's column. And yet the first three or four comments were all questions about Arsenal. So the post bag, as we're calling it, <laughs> mail bag, whatever you want to call it, we'll deal with in a, in a little while because there's a load of Arsenal stuff in there. But just, just my questions to you before we go on to the fans. Anything on the future of Emery? At the time of recording, um, the plan is that Unai Emery will take charge of Arsenal's Europa League game on Thursday. Um, It's pretty obvious that things are very, very delicate at the moment. Uh, Arsenal's intention was to, the the hierarchy's intention was to to review this in the summer um, and put their backing, certainly publicly, uh, behind Unai, Unai Emery. Um, whether that's going to change will we'll just come down to results now. Um, things are clearly on the pitch and to a certain extent off the pitch, spiralling out of control. And it could get to a point, obviously, that um, they feel they have to make a change. Um, it's got to be really careful with what you say because you don't know exactly what's happening every minute. Um and as we said, things change. Um, it feels like it feels like things are happening. They're, yeah. they're they're acutely aware of the situation. You know, failing to beat the bottom of the table side, who a couple of weeks previously were beaten nine nil at home. Uh, Arsenal conceding twenty one attempts. I think it was. Um, Clearly, things are not right. That you know, the mood mood music coming from Emery's side is that he's and he said this publicly, fighting, uh, believes he's got the backing of the club, um, but you've only got the backing of a club for as long as they back you, and so you can go from being fully backed to being out of a job. We've we've seen it before. Um, I think it's fair to assume, as an opinion, that um, and it's been reported as fact elsewhere that Arsenal are looking at candidates to replace him if they are to get rid of him. Um, That would be sensible of any club in this situation, and I'm sure most clubs are doing it a lot of the time. We didn't even mention Manchester United earlier and and the constant sort of speculation around Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, especially now that Pochettino is back on the market. Um, You know, the Emirates on Thursday is going to be a really low attendance, probably possibly their lowest ever for a first team game one because the frankfurt supporters are banned and secondly because arsenal have got restrictions on what extra home tickets they can sell out of i I don't know the exact rules but 
sort of caution on whether away fans can then access the oh, home right, okay. tickets um, on top of the situation that's yeah. going on, which is going to cause many fans to stay away. It looks like now it's a matter of when rather than if, and it will come down to results, which, you know, they could have been clear and said, it's not going to be a matter of results. We're going to stick by him until the end of the season. Those aren't the messages now coming out of the club. Um, but as things stand, at the time of broadcasting, yeah. um, he will be on the touchline for the uh, Eintracht Frankfurt game. Let's touch on what's going on at Everton next on this uh, brand new Ornstein and Chapman podcast. Uh, we can talk to the Athletics' Patrick Boyland on what is going on with Marco Silva, in particular with this post-match meeting, Patrick, that they had on Saturday at the club. Yeah, absolutely. As, as you just said there, our understanding is that there was a, a meeting of board members after that 2-0 defeat to Norwich. Marcel Brand, Bill Kenwright, Farhad Mashiri, and Chief Executive Denise Barrett-Baxendale all discussed the future of Marco Silva in light of the defeat. And it's our understanding that although... Silver's situation is precarious. There's, there was no imminent danger of him getting the, the sack. So that, that was the news on Saturday. And the same message was given to us again on, on Sunday when we asked the question. And, and that's kind of filtered through to today as well. So Silver is, is in a difficult situation. I think he's kind of clinging on by a thread. But um, as it stands, the, the, there's no kind of an imminent danger of him of getting the job. The are, job they, sorry. are they... Um... Are the board unanimous in this, or are there differences of opinion? It's, to be honest, it's quite difficult to get to the bottom of the different messages we get from inside the boardroom mm. because we, we have to understand that there are three main players here. We have the director of football, Marcel Brands, who, who is brought in to oversee the footballing operation. You've got the chairman, Bill Kenwright, who once had a, a much bigger stake in Everton Football Club, but now has just a, a 5% share and... And then obviously the um, majority shareholder, Farhad Mashiri, too. So I think reaching unanimity is is quite tough at times. But at at this moment in time, the the feeling and and the feeling we've had over the last couple of months has been that they want to give Silva every opportunity to to put things right, to get things right on the pitch. He was Farhad Mashiri's man when, when Farhad Mashiri made the, the appointment it was it was him that took the lead on this and i think that's given him a little bit of leeway as well marcel brands also understands the appointment when he came into the club as a director of football so there are people here who have been prepared to give marco silver time i think it's just the case now that patience is starting to wear a little bit thin and just and just finally just finally on it um are they also because we were talking earlier on the pod about what is normal in most walks of life and, and and professions doesn't you know doesn't seem common sense in football such as you know they often try to hide talking to future appointments while someone is still in the job but the last time Everton tried to do everything by the book when they got rid of Ronald Koeman they were then left with a vacuum and ended up with Sam Allardyce so uh, are they conscious of what's happened before and actually maybe taking the time to sound out potential replacements to make sure that it doesn't happen as it happened when they got rid of Koeman? I think that's a really interesting question. And I look at this on two levels. The first is the one that you've mentioned there yourself. Before Everton have not necessarily got that succession planning right, and they've ended up in a situation where the example you pointed to under Ronald Koeman, Koeman was sacked. David Unsworth took charge for a long period of time and Everton eventually crept towards the relegation zone. 
I don't think they want that to happen here, and I think that's part of what we're seeing at this moment in time. But I think the other thing as well, you, you look at Everton's fixtures now over the next month, a month and a bit, and it's a very daunting set of fixtures for a new manager to come into. And if, if you're a David Moyes and Eddie Howe and Mikel Arteta, whoever you may be, and you're being touted for this Everton job, and you see that Everton are going into a period where they have Leicester and Liverpool away, followed by Chelsea at home, followed by Manchester United away, and then followed by Arsenal at home. That's not even taking into account the fact that they have Manchester City away on New Year's Day. I think that then becomes a, a very tough task for you to kind of get motivated to take that on. So mm. there are a few factors at work here. I, I do think that Everton are trying to be a bit wiser, a little bit smarter and, and deal with the succession planning. But I think they are also conscious of, of giving any new manager a really difficult baptism of fire in, in those games I've mentioned that are coming up. Patrick, thank you very much. We will talk soon. Uh, and Patrick's also going to be co-host of our weekly Everton podcast, Glad Tidings, with fellow athletic writer Greg O'Keefe. So uh, to end each podcast, uh, I'll put some tweets to you that people have been uh, sending in. Let's combine a couple on Tottenham first. There are some on Arsenal. We'll, we'll end mm-hmm. on an Arsenal one. But just a couple on Tottenham. Freddie J. Bear, any hints as to how active Tottenham will be in January transfer window? And co- combine that with... Tommy T-Rex. So this is Freddie J. Bear and Tommy T-Rex. Uh, what are the implications for Spurs if they don't make the Champions League when it comes to summer spending? So basically, you've got January and the summer there. Oh, very interesting. It, well, the message that Mourinho himself seemed to um, uh, put out when when he was unveiled, uh, presented to the media, as Tottenham boss, was that um, he didn't need money. He was uh, going to back the young players and the players they've got at their disposal. Um, they, of course, did spend quite heavily last summer, Tottenham, um, because they hadn't spent for what a year and a half prior to that. Um, and we don't know the exact financial situation. Um, uh, prior to the departure of Pochettino, I was led to believe that uh, it would be a relatively quiet window of incomings but there could certainly be some outgoings um there will be renewed attempts or there were going to be renewed attempts to move on the players who were out of contract so you in the next summer so you're looking at Toby Alderweireld uh, Jan Vertonghen um the Christian Eriksen situation of course uh, maybe Danny Rose who has since said that he's going to stay till the end of his contract. So a lot still to be done that was, you know, these are the same things that were being talked about last summer under Maurizio Pochettino. So now Jose Mourinho's in, how much activity will be done? Well, it's interesting that uh, he pointed to the young players and not doing much business because um, one player I know that he is very keen to work with is Ryan Sessegnon because he repeatedly pushed very hard at Manchester United to sign Sessegnon from Fulham. And now it comes around that he'll be managing him at Spurs. And I think he wants to give players like that a fair opportunity. It is, of course, counterbalanced by the fact that, they, that, that, that they're going to have to make an aggressive push now to get into the Champions League and uh, you know turn their situation around. And so it wouldn't surprise you, and with Mourinho's track record of using the market as well, if they bought in a couple of players. But I don't know that for a fact. How much money is available? Well, Joe Lewis, of course, is a very wealthy man. Tottenham <laughs> are in a relatively healthy financial situation despite the, the move to the new stadium. So I presume there would be some finance available. Of course, um, they 
seemed that they would have the finance available um, to bring in the Juventus playmaker Paolo Dybala last summer. That deal collapsed, so that money presumably just doesn't vanish. Um, I think it sounds like rather than a player, one of the key signings for Tottenham may be a sort of director of football, somebody to work with Mourinho, maybe a conduit between Mourinho and Daniel Levy. And he's been heavily linked with Luis Campos from Lille. He's already taken two staff from Lille. He worked with Campos at Real Madrid. They're both Portuguese. Campos has done a phenomenal job at Lille. Um, Ironically, Arsenal traded with him last summer because (laughs) they brought in Nicolas Pepe. Um, so there are reports that that's actually Mourinho's priority for the summer, uh, for, for the January window, rather than um, rather than players. We're already approaching December. Very little time to get these things together, and nobody tends to like the January window. Full stop. So perhaps they're targeting uh, the summer for some some real business there at Spurs. Um, and one story we didn't mention earlier to do with Mourinho uh, that he won't be bringing with him uh, to to Tottenham. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I missed, had to get this. Out in. of all of this, I missed the big story <laughs> know, from this your is the column. Scoop. This is the scoop, and this is a certain plug for the column. Um, <laughs> is that um, after the infamous um, uh, or, or bizarre celebration that Mourinho? Um, uh, engaged in when Marouane Fellaini scored a, a stoppage time winner against Young Boys in November 2018. Mourinho slamming a basket of water bottles or drinks bottles down to the, the old Trafford turf. Um, it, it emerged uh, very soon after that Mourinho might be facing a charge. He escaped a charge from the authorities. Uh, however, he did then um, get hold of that water drinks bottle uh, basket and uh, place it in his office as a souvenir. Read into that what you like about Mourinho, uh, but I suppose it's not coming with him to Spurs He's Lodge. left that, has he? Well, we don't know, but I, I very much <laughs> doubt it will be uh, travelling down from Manchester. A <laughs> um, uh, couple of Arsenal ones, Em. Uh, LT Arsenal. Uh, do you think Granit Xhaka will play soon? Yes. Do you? Yeah, I do. Um yeah, it's a, a, a line we've not talked about yet. Um, I think Arsenal would like to reintegrate him into the side. Um, they feel that uh, he, they've suffered in his absence. Um, the balance of the team, the uh, cover that he provides to the defence, who are, who are being cruelly exposed in terms of what we're seeing on the pitch, but also the way they're being talked about uh, as well, uh, ridiculed really and, and and Arsenal feel that um, Xhaka's loss has been particularly uh, pertinent in that area um, I think they'll look to reintegrate him in an away match rather yeah. than a home match given what's happened before but the idea that he's played his last match for Arsenal um, I'm, I'm now dissuaded from and I'm also keen to point out that people within the club and this we many people have talked about this think thought really highly of him in terms of his role in the team and around the club um even when he was really being slated widely people inside the club were telling me that you don't realize how important he is to the team the structure the balance um the understanding of the sort of tactics and without um in any way meaning to besmirch um Matteo Guendouzi or, or Lucas Torreira, who are very good players in their own right, they don't do what Granit Xhaka does. And though he has faults um, and is is heavily criticised in some areas, 
um, the statistical people who know a lot more than me say that there are areas where Granit Xhaka excels as Arsenal's best central midfielder. Uh, and this is kind of linked to this, and this is the final one for this week. Vladimir, there are a lot of fan communities around in the Premier League, says Vladimir, but uh, are fans of Arsenal the most impatient? Because, And I won't get you to answer that bit, but the next bit is really interesting. From what I can see, the situations between players and fans is getting hotter and what is needed to make a healthy atmosphere between the club and the fans? Wow. Well, that's, a re- that's a really, really good question. So two things from my perspective, and it's only really an opinion. The, the, the first one is obvious. Um, the results have been woeful uh, and, and winning football matches picks things up. You suspect for many Arsenal fans now, there's no way back for for Emery, but doesn't mean all fans. And and if they were to be winning matches or at least playing the football that Arsenal fans want to see, at least sort of th- um, showing signs of of uh, capitalising on their vast attacking potential and um, scoring, winning, uh, and and picking up the points that they should be, especially against the the lower teams, then that would help. Uh, also, the communication is a key problem from the perspective of Arsenal supporters. They don't feel that um, they've got any clarity about what's going on uh, in terms of decision-making around, I don't know, the hierarchy, the contractual situations, Aubameyang and Lacazette's specifically, previously, um, Aaron Ramsey's and uh, decision uh, communication around decisions on the pitch selection uh, the Xhaka situation um, they uh, they found it hard to to understand um, Unai Emery's communication in press conferences um, um, there are lots of suggestions that the players don't understand what is being asked of them or, or, or completely understand what uh, is being asked of them from a tactical and a structural and a positional and an individual perspective from Emery as well. Um, so communication on and off the pitch in all areas from the Americans right down to the coach seems to be a massive issue and the fundamentals, they're not winning football matches and no fan base is going to be happy in that situation. Uh, I've seen some pictures of you on social media this week being lauded at the various dinners you went to, uh, Troy there Townsend in particular. There, there were two uh, good Football events. Blacklist. He, football Blacklist was yeah. magnificent. Yeah. Did um, he, he ask you for the selfie? Um, Look, it looks like it from the way he's, from the way he's posted it. Going into too much detail here. You can't reveal... You can reveal inside information on lots of things involving football clubs, but you can't reveal the inside information on whether Troy Townsend asked you for the selfie. Are you, but, but, you know, like a ma- if a manager was sacked, so often it's mutual. And, and in this oh. case, it was, it was mutually agreed. It was a agreed. mutual selfie. Uh, and, and there was a very good event in Manchester on, on Sunday evening, which was the northern branch of the Football Writers Association. Um, that was Klopp and Guardiola managers on stage together, dinner. wasn't it? Yeah, that, that was fascinating, actually. So they spoke to each other for a good 10 minutes or so uh, in the reception bar before we all went into the, the function room. Um, love to be a fly on the wall in that conversation. And it all looked very um, jovial and amicable. Then they sat on the top table together, separated only by Andy Dunn from the Daily Mirror, who's the chairman of, of the Northern Branch. Uh, and they both gave short speeches, both gave very good, funny speeches, both referencing each other, a lot of laughter in the room, uh, talking at the table when possible as well. And when 
Klopp, who spoke, sorry, when Guardiola, who spoke second, came back from his speech, uh, everyone's laughing and they did a big hand slap with each other. Um, so this idea of it being the modern day Ferguson, Wenger, uh, Benitez, Mourinho, like a simmering feud between the top two managers competing for domestic and European supremacy couldn't be further further from the truth. It was really nice to see, actually. And they were quite rightly honoured and uh, they spoke very well of each other's clubs um whether that maintains as as the season draws draws towards a tense close we'll see you need a new wardrobe don't you that's what we're, that's what we've learned you're now going to so uh, you're now going to so many dinners and so many showbiz events that all of a sudden the old clothes are needed. You've got you you've got to go showbiz wardrobe. Emperor's new clothes, isn't it? Hey. Um, a showbiz wardrobe. I got a lovely watch as a gift that was <laughs> was um, was you know via a collection when I left the BBC. I must credit my former colleagues. Um, and now I have so little time that embarrassingly my wife has started buying things for me to wear. And I've come in dressed terribly for this podcast because I've got my gym trainers on, some jeans that don't fit. Although that's quite fashionable in this day and age. I, I, I'm led to yeah. believe. And well, with those um, socks, you're not meant to wear socks with jeans that short. Correct. Sort of um, yeah. I know these things. So yeah, I'm I'm um, I'm a bit of a shambles. <laughs> yeah, but what was some somebody in football said to me the other day? Don't dress for the job you have. Dress for the job that you want to have. Um, and. I always, always aspired to actually have a similar role to what you've got, and that means I need to wear a tatty grey hoodie, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, it's a podcast. I mean, I'm not meeting anybody. You've got all the contacts. I just blag it. I've got jeans and a hoodie on. You don't need anything else in my role. Uh, David, thank you very much. Pleasure. That's the first one done and done. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to read in-depth about the stories, not the fashion, uh, that we've discussed, <laughs> uh, including David's column. That drops every Monday, plus uh, many more. So all of Laurie's stuff is on there, and uh, Patrick and Evan and as we've spoken today, loads more detail on the Athletic website. So all you've got to do, head over to theathletic.co.uk. You'll get a 40% discount if you use the promo code UKPOD. So that's theathletic.co.uk and a 40% discount if you use the promo code UKPOD. Our show will be available for free by the usual podcast providers every single week. And there are a load more podcasts coming this week from The Athletic. So that includes uh, the zonal marking one with the incredible Michael Cox breaking down all the tactical analysis. We're going to have a whole host of club podcasts that will build up over the coming weeks, uh, including Arsenal. Are you on that one? Uh, contributing yeah, at times. Okay. <laughs> Lee Dixon is a guest on the first Arsenal one this week. Uh, and this general one, all the big stories here on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast. That's the first one. We're off and running. We'll be back next week with even more of those original stories. Thanks very much for listening. Bye. Bye.